an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, restrictive racist covenants are lurking in real estate documents all over the evergreen state. Basically, it's in places where neighborhoods were platted in a certain time period. Basically, 1920 to 1960 seems to be the heyday. And then, from the archives, a conversation with Jerry Grinelli, late drummer on the Charlie Brown Christmas album. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And on Fridays, our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And as that old Amtrak ad used to say, there's something about a train that's magic. And that seems to be especially true at Christmas time, and not just because Joe is president. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. You know, as much as I believe radio and Christmas go together, especially after last night's rehearsal of the big holiday show we're putting on on Tuesday, we have a little work to do, I think. Um, anyway, I believe that trains and Christmas are also a perfect match. I have a couple of quick local railroad history things to do and see this holiday season all over the Northwest. First, model trains have been popular Christmas gifts for about a century, and the Washington State History Museum in Tacoma, they're presenting their 25th annual model train festival starting next Friday. They skipped it last year because of the pandemic, so people are thrilled it's back. Seven clubs moved their massive model railroad layouts into the museum. Plus, up on the fifth floor, they have that permanent model train layout, which is the biggest in all of Washington. And the club guys are there ready to talk about all the minute detail about the different gauges and transformers and all the things you're curious about. And because of the pandemic, they are doing time tickets for the first time ever. And we have a link at My Northwest, and the show runs through January 2nd. Uh, up at the Northwest Railway Museum, Snoqualmie, I'm sorry to say their popular Santa train is sold out for this year. But it's still worth a visit to see the old depot in Snoqualmie or tour the train shed exhibit hall. There's all kinds of cool stuff to see up there. And that's, a lot of that stuff's open through the end of the year. Um, if you still want to ride a vintage train and aren't mind, aren't don't mind a long drive. You can go down to the Mount Hood Christmas train in Oregon. Um, I rode that one about 25 years ago. It's pretty cool. It's an hour-long ride. It goes from Hood River to Christmastown, and that's not an Oregon locality I'm familiar with, <laughs> but I like what their website says, quote, to maintain the holiday magic, the location of Christmastown is not disclosed ah. unless you ride the train. And one more very quick thing. There's nothing really to do there, but you can see the old Cheney Depot in downtown Cheney. Mm-hmm. Built in 1929, beautiful mission style with red tile roof and everything. They moved it last year, about five blocks, to a new location. It's all boarded up, but it's gorgeous. A group has saved it. They've raised almost all the money they Good need. It's going to be turned into a museum and an event space, and it's just it looks gorgeous with the snow on it. And if you're headed over to Spokane, like I'll be around Christmas time, stop in a Cheney and just take a look at this really cool old 1929 depot. Another win for history. Thank yes. you, Felix. <laughs> Have a good weekend. <laughs> you too. Thanks, Dave. Serving Greater Seattle. Time now to take you back, back, back into history. So-called restrictive covenants forbidding the sale of real estate to people based on their race or ethnicity were commonplace in the middle of the 20th century, and many real estate documents still contain those old racial restrictions. Our resident historian Felix Bennell is here with the latest on a new state law which gives property owners a way to remove that language There's also a related research project going on in eastern Washington. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Morning, Dave. Yeah, the state legislature passed a new law earlier this year to address the presence of restrictive racist covenants on property deeds in Washington state. 
and give property owners and residents options for legally removing the language from their deeds. It passed with strong bipartisan support. Now, the idea of a restrictive covenant, if it seems abstract, language in the bill equates the words, which often restrict ownership of a specific house to whites only or forbid specific racial groups from ownership, they equate that with a statue. Language in the bill calls restrictive covenants, quote, offensive written monuments to racism or other unconstitutional discrimination. Now, this is the part I find most interesting. The bill also funded the UW and Eastern Washington University in Cheney to work with each county in their part of the state to identify all the deeds that contain this language and then notify the property owners or tenants. So it's a massive project. Now, um, work to address this dark chapter in history was pioneered here in Washington by Dr. Jim Gregory at the UW. His work's really spread the word on this side of the mountains. The new law makes it a statewide effort. Now, um, Logan Campo Reale works for the Spokane City Historic Preservation Officer and is consulting on the project at Eastern Washington. Um, he told me the covenants on real estate documents weren't originally created as a means of excluding people, but something changed about 100 years ago. At first, they generally, as far as we know, weren't used for racist things, but were more used for um, other sorts of concerns, like whether or not you could have a garage or, or something like that. Or how large, you know, how how large your house could be, how quickly you needed to build it, all these sorts of things. But when ordinances that uh, segregated cities were outlawed in a 1917 Supreme Court decision, property developers looked to a new tool, um, one that they already had in their in their pocket, um, restrictive covenants, and they started adding that racist language to them. And uh, Larry Sabula is a professor of history at Eastern Washington and also the assistant digital archivist for the Washington State Archives. He told me that restrictive racist covenants were used all over the U.S. To, to perpetuate segregated neighborhoods after that law change in 1917. Now, we've known for a while how prevalent they are on the west side of the Cascades. Turns out they aren't exactly rare in eastern Washington. We are finding them um, throughout the state or throughout the eastern part of the state. We are not finding them everywhere. Basically, it's in places where neighborhoods were platted in a certain time period. Basically, 1920 to 1960 seems to be the heyday of these. And so when a neighborhood was platted in that era, it was fairly common for such a covenant to be involved. And a neighborhood needn't be like, you know, 10 square blocks. It could be, you know, a handful of city lots. But we have found them so far in places like Pullman and Wenatchee and Ritzville. So they're pretty widespread. We've also found some counties where they don't seem to exist. I don't want to quite say that as a certainty yet. Yeah, and just as a preview, those two counties are Lincoln and Ponderay, and it could be that the development happened there after the 20s to the 50s, which is sort of the golden age of restrictive covenants. Now, um, we're obviously living in an age of reckoning when it comes to race in America, but these restrictive covenants have actually been technically unenforceable since a U.S. Supreme Court ruling way back in 1948. I asked Logan Kemper Reale why a state law allowing removal of symbolic language is a worthwhile pursuit in 2021. He told me the main objective of the project is to work with each county to identify the deeds in the public record that have this language. Any actual removal of the language or modification of the document will be up to the individual property owner or resident. Having one of these restrictive covenants on your individual property, you know, just imagine yourself as an individual having a covenant that says you or people that look like you are unable to live there. It seems pretty obvious how that could impact your ability to freely enjoy your property, and you should have some remedy in order to address that. And so not necessarily advocating for a full-scale removal of these, um, but also recognizing that property owners should have a remedy to address it on their own individual property should they choose. You know, one further wrinkle in all of this is a legal case that's working its way through the state Supreme Court. Um, Before the new law, a Spokane homeowner sued to be able to remove the covenant on his home. 
the court decision, which is due sometime in the next couple months, will likely have some impact on the state law when it comes to the actual mechanism of removing the language from a deed. Now, this is a little complicated, but the law as written has two different remedies. One's basically removal of the offensive language. The other is the addition of new language that sort of contextualizes and nullifies the covenant. This is tricky because no archivist or historian wants to erase history. But most do understand a property owner's desire to sort of essentially cleanse the paperwork for their property, you know, get rid of that written statue, as it were. And really, these restrictive covenants are symbolic more than anything else. Um, they're also apparently still not really technically illegal. This is first Larry and then Logan. Well, why do people keep adding them after they're unenforceable? Because they sent a message. They had a function, even when they were not legally enforceable. And to some extent, they still may have that function, and that's why they need to go. And honestly, in the Supreme Court argument, that one of the justices asked the county, the counsel for the county, if, if somebody would be allowed to file one of these documents today. And the, the, the counsel's answer in, in less words was yes. Um, it's not our job as the county auditor to be reviewing documents and determining if they're racist or not. And so I'm not sure that some other mechanism would stop you. But at least based on the oral arguments at the Supreme Court, nothing is stopping you from filing restrictive covenants today that have racist provisions. You just, just like in 1955, would be unable to enforce them. So it's bizarre. It's sort of very mm. complicated, and it's really up to the individual property owner if they want to remove that language. Um, the project's funded for a couple years. Most of the work will be done by students, which is also pretty cool. The end result will likely be some kind of statewide website for homeowners and renters to easily research specific properties and then, if, des- if so desired, begin the legal process to remove or change the language of that restrictive covenant. So, so as a historian, you're not worried that this might backfire in that future generations might be able to say, see, that never happened. Well, that's what the you know, Larry Sibula, as an archivist, he says sort of, it's sort of like two different folders. The documents will be removed from the individual property document, but then they'll be in a folder sort of saying, here's all the restrictive covenants right. that, that once were enforced in Washington. So it is, it's, it's, it's. I mean, I can see, you know, when they, when they revise legislation, they have a strike through, right? Where they yeah. strike through the stuff that is, is, is old or outdated or not enforced, but at least there's still a record of it there. So, I mean, whatever makes you feel most comfortable, but yeah. I, I would hate to see the uh, record artificially cleansed so that, you know, 100 years now they say, you know, we never did that. <laughs> the idea of racial restrictions, that's, that never happened. Yeah, I agree. I like that contextualized version where there's essentially a new piece of paper that says the next page has a restrictive covenant that's racist and that was enforced for yeah. you know, X number of years, but it was uh, nullified in 2021 or whatever. That would be the ideal. Because, yeah, you don't want to get rid of it. You don't want to erase history, certainly. Yeah. Felix Bunnell, all his features available anytime at findnorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, the late Jerry Grinelli was just 24 years old when he played drums on the Charlie Brown Christmas album with Vince Guaraldi. I spoke with him live one night in 2015. Welcome back to the Jason Rantz Show. Jason's off, recovering from holiday magic. So... Felix Bunnell, that's me, and Jackie Cunningham are sitting in, and Frank is here. And Frank, you're not allowed to say the phrase bikini barista on any show other than <laughs> Ron and Don. I'm going ha- to hear from Pete tomorrow about this. You've, you've broken, it'd be like me doing a number, an hour number two echo for this show. Such a random phrase for you to be banned from saying. I know. I, you know, be careful. I should have never, I should have never done it when I, it's like four, they, four or five years ago. And they kept that clip. They have and they kept will that forever. They have about a half a dozen of them. 
They it, like to rub my it, nose. It, it confuses the listeners. Anyway, it's sort of holiday magic continues in the form of, we're talking a lot about holidays and end of the year Christmas stuff, and joining us tonight is a legendary drummer, drummer, a jazz drummer named Jerry Grinelli. Jerry, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, thank you so much for making time for us. I know you're four hours ahead of us in, uh, are you in St. John's, Newfoundland? That's right. I'm as far east away from you as I can possibly get. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. that's a compliment, Jerry. <laughs> I, I was thrilled to learn that you're you're on this tour this year talking about the 50th anniversary of the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the album that yeah, you recorded. I yes, I am. I did a piece called Tales of Charlie Brown's Christmas. Uh, and so we're out with the trio and we use the children's choir wherever we go. And it's been great. Sold out everywhere. That music is wonderful time. The music's incredible to me because it never really wears out. I mean, there's a certain number of Christmas songs that I've heard thousands of times, and I love Christmas music. And but that one still seems really timeless to me. And so, how old were you when you when you recorded that stuff? Twenty-four years old, fifty years ago, (laughs) just a couple (laughs) years ago. But I always think with something like this, like, did you have any idea? Because there's so many projects musicians get, you know, it could be for a cartoon or a soundtrack for a movie. You had no idea at 24 that, you know, 50 years later, this is still such a staple in people's lives. Nobody had any idea. There was no idea. CBS didn't even want to put it on the air. You know, Coca-Cola made them because they paid the time, but. They didn't want jazz music. They didn't want those uh, animation. They didn't want a little kid named Linus telling the world what Christmas was all about. Yeah, uh, they believed that nobody would ever see it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, how much time elapsed between you know when it aired that first time back in 1965, and when it you know it seemed like it had I don't know installed itself into the, the cultural firmament as this landmark that's going to always be around? When when did that strike you? Do you think? Uh. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it struck me that it was in about 10 or 15 years later. But that night, you know, half the viewing audience in North America watched it. That's so crazy. There was some indication that something was going on. And <laughs> and now it's, you know, it's four million records later. So it just kept growing and it keeps growing every year, you know. And But I didn't pay any attention to it. I was, I don't know, I was just left the band a year or two a year and a half or two later and i went on to other things and uh uh it just kept growing every year they just kept showing it and every year the one people want to see what's what's your strongest memory of vince garaldi what was he like vince was uh well i you know vince was he was tough in some ways for a young musician and uh, he was a mentor and a really good friend. Uh, I did every record after that with him, some part of them or all of them. And, uh, you know, but he had to fight all the time to just keep his integrity as an artist and have his music out and on the air. You know, nobody believed Cash to Fate to the Wind was going to be a hit record. Yeah. And nobody believed this was going to be a hit. So he was a... I admire Vince for being an honest and great piano player. You know, I mean, but he he really worked at his music and fought for it. And I, that's a great thing to be around when you're 24 years old. You know? 
We're talking to Jerry Grinelli. He's a drummer on that magical, incredible, iconic Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack that accompanies that wonderful television program that's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. I think it aired a week or so ago here locally. Mm-hmm. I, um, I have had the DVD, and I haven't. I have to watch it at least once a year. Um, so you, last I think, night was the anniversary of its first showing. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how much how yeah. much a television used, like that used to be an event where you know since you didn't you, you can only see it when it came on. You couldn't play a DVD or even a VHS tape like when I was a little kid. You just you, no, if you missed yeah. it, you missed it. That was it. Right yeah. now we just watch it on demand. <laughs> yeah, it made it really special. I think I read that you, you you recorded that just that whole thing in a couple hours, and then you played another gig that night. It was just sort of just a, just one little job in in a busy week. Yeah three hours maybe we did a double session i'm not sure it was 50 years ago but uh you know yeah it was it was fun and we had done the uh, first try at a doc uh, called you're a good man charlie brown and that became out of the record even before this one did and uh it was pretty amazing that it was all very ordinary and i think that's part of the quality of what people keep uh, reaching for, and especially the times we're living in, uh, it's a chance for people to, you know, there's soundtracks to our lives. What I like about your technique on that, most of those songs are the brushes you can hear rather than the drumsticks. And that seems like that takes an extra, I don't know, extra layer of something, some kind of different talent. What is it about the brush and the drum? Uh, it goes back to the old tap dancers and the sand dance, sand tap dancers. <laughs> That's where drummers. Well, that's the argument. They claim we stole it from them. We claim they stole it from us. But it was, a, you know, when you were growing up in, in that time that I did, you learned to play brushes. And there was these great drummers, Joe Jones, the old man Joe Jones, who played with Count Basie, and who you got to see have this magical thing with these brushes, just making circles and how to do it. It was a, a wonderful form to learn how to play. And I played a lot of dance gigs, learning how to do that, you know. Uh, and people, I mean, it's just amazing, right? People, I get emails from people going, well, the, you know, the brushes on Christmas time is here. And mm-hmm. like, how'd you do that? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> That's a long time yeah, ago. <laughs> I'm on your website, Jerry. It's jerrygrinelli.com. And I, looking at your schedule since the end of November, you are as active on tour as 25-year-old musicians. It's crazy. Does that keep you young, oh, you think? yeah. <laughs> it's been really great and and I it continues. I have a couple of weeks off and then in January I start up again and uh yeah, I have a new record with uh, that I'm going to be working on next year with Bill Frizzell, and, you know. And you know, I lived in Seattle for a, a long time there, called at Cornish. You did? Oh, nice. I didn't know that. When was that? I I moved to Seattle in 1980 when that great faculty was at Cornish Institute. Gary oh, wow. Peacock and myself um, Jim Knapp brought us all there. Huh. I didn't know that. That's awesome. So yeah, you were in the part of that whole West Coast jazz scene in the '60s, right? Which was a whole different, whole different kettle of fish than jazz elsewhere, right? Yeah, San Francisco. I mean, we we grew up in. I grew up in San Francisco, and that was a different thing. It was very different than L.A. It was very connected to New York, and uh, yeah, so San Francisco was very unique. Dewey Redmond came out of San Francisco. Pharoah mm-hmm. Sanders. You know, uh, and Cal Jader, so, Dave Lubeck. So, are you ever walking it was into a pretty vital scene to grow up in? 
As was Seattle. You guys did pretty good up there with Quincy Jones, Jimmy Hendrix. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, we huh? have done okay. Ray Charles. I feel like you've seen a lot, Jerry. <laughs> I, d- I feel like we if we sat down and had a chat one night. I would hear some interesting stories from you from over the years. Yeah, there's a lot of probably stuff I couldn't tell you on the air. <laughs> yeah, that's what we would talk about <laughs> off air, definitely. <laughs> so uh, what's it like when you're walking through a department store in late November and you hear that one of those songs coming up through the speakers? What What's that feel like? <laughs> It's okay now. For a while, it was I would just realize I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I was wondering Aww. if you got royalties or anything like that. I did get some royalties this last year after 48 years. But, oh, that's... Uh, wow. Yeah. So that makes that song sound a little sweeter than in the department store because it's a little bit of a... It does. <laughs> My daughter was just in a Starbucks in... Uh, where was she? Oh, she was in New York, you know. There it was, and she felt like yelling, there's my dad, that's my dad. That's <laughs> my dad. They didn't pay him for so long. So was there a period of time where you, where you were sort of, where you were you kind of put this out of your mind and didn't play these songs or didn't think about it or felt bitter about it at all, like where it was because of the no, issues you described? I bitter about it. I, part of it was, well, for 47 years I didn't play it. Wow. Uh, last night was the first night I played it in the United States in 50 years. I played in Boulder, Colorado. Wow. And, uh, that's it's crazy. kind of funny that the United States hasn't welcomed it back as much. This is, you know, and a part of the reason I didn't do it was people wanted it to be about nostalgia, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like doing that. Or people wanted it to be weird. They'd say, "Could you make a weird version?" I'm like, <laughs> Why would I do that? You know? Oh, I got it. Yeah, I kind of like, like the idea of that, Jerry. <laughs> Could you do a weird version just for us? Should we yeah. auto-tune it for you, Jerry? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. What's the reception Finally, been I like did, in Canada with these shows you've been doing? It's been, you know, 700 people, 1,000 people sold out before we get anywhere. We just came in here and all the concerts, there's four concerts in Newfoundland, and they're all sold out. And it's been amazing. The stories that people come up and say, tell me afterwards, because I go out and sign CDs and sign posters and... Yeah. You know, and people, it's way beyond just the music. And it's a good jazz concert now, too, because with this young trio, we stretch that music out, which is when I play with Vince, we played it at night, and we didn't play those just those little record versions, you know. Uh, so people come up. I mean, things like, hey, I was in Afghanistan for two tours. This is what got me through. Right on. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Got me through Christmas. Jerry. I mean, what hey, do you do with that? You know? Right? It's amazing. Well, we'll leave it there. Jerry, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy early morning there in St. John's, Newfoundland. That's it's awesome for you to talk with us, and ah, it's really nice to meet you on, over the radio like this. Yeah, maybe uh, we'll come out there and do it one day. Hey, days. Merry Christmas. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care. It's Jerry Grinelli. Merry the, Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. The drummer on the... Vince Guaraldi Trio, Charlie Brown Christmas Album. It's a Jason Rance Show with Felix Bennell and Jackie Cunningham filling in. I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's rainy.
This is Bill Curtis inviting you to tune in to KIRO Felix will enlighten you.